Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, Paxton strikes back. Acquitted from impeachment, the Texas Attorney General is promising to crush his political enemies. And why are Venezuelans coming to the border in mass? And how is TPS going to help many Venezuelan asylum seekers? This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. In case you missed it, the Texas Attorney General is again Ken Paxton. The indicted Republican managed to avoid being convicted in his impeachment despite the overwhelming amount of evidence. And there is even more evidence of political witness tampering with some of the Republican senators who voted to acquit Paxton. So Paxton goes back to his powerful office and is promising payback, which could result in a civil war with the Texas GOP, which is also setting up a spicy special session. Lawmakers are being called back to Austin next month for a special session on the already contentious school voucher issue. For more on the post-Paxson impeachment fallout, let's hear from Scott Braddock, the editor of the Quorum Report. Well, I think that the attorney general is trying to cover for the fact that he still does have walls closing in around him. You have uh, seen him on Tucker Carlson uh, and on uh, conservative radio across the state um, making the case that somehow it's the Biden administration, uh, the Democrats in Washington, who really were the ones to instigate uh, Republicans in the Texas House, uh, opening an investigation against him and ultimately impeaching him with an overwhelming bipartisan vote, by the way, in the House. 121 uh, votes out of 150 with 70%, 70% of Texas House Republicans voting to impeach him. But somehow he says this is all the Democrats uh, you know, at work. And I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to shore up his base uh, ahead of what's going to be uh, not only a busy primary season, uh, but also uh, other legal problems for him. As you know, uh, they're in San Antonio. There's a grand jury looking into a federal grand jury looking into uh, you know, his connections to this investor, uh, Nate Paul. We could see an indictment. Uh, against Paxton, you know, at the federal level. And there's also the state level prosecution uh, against him in Houston. Um, and so his legal problems are far from over. And uh, on his uh, Tucker Carlson interview, by the way, on X or Twitter or whatever we're calling it now, um, on the Tucker Carlson interview, uh, David, he said that, you know, yeah, I might, I might have to go to jail uh, and these people are after me. Um, so he's leaving open the possibility that that's going to happen and really uh, playing into sort of the persecution complex that a lot of the supporters of former President Trump suffer from. Well, we're also hearing about the challenges that will be coming to a primary, some of the Republicans. That smacks of GOP civil war. Is that is that an exaggeration? Uh, not at all. And, uh, you know, there's been a long-running civil war in the Texas Republican Party. Uh, you know, I've been covering some version of this, and you have too, uh, for at least about 15 or 20 years, uh, you know, with the so-called grassroots versus the establishment. Really what it is in a lot of cases um, is these astroturf groups, uh, very well-funded third-party groups, uh, you know, that uh, are bankrolled by some West Texas billionaires who really have a Christian nationalist view, uh, and they want to impress that upon the state government of Texas. And uh, look, this this guy 
Ken Paxton has been, you know, their biggest gun uh, in their civil war. Um, you know, he was uh, elected back in uh, 2014 to the AG's office. Uh, in large part, uh, he was able to win that race because uh, he had the backing of those West Texas billionaires who at the time gave him a $1 million loan. They collateralized a loan for him at that time when he was in a runoff uh, against um, a Dallas uh, Republican uh, by the name of Dan Branch. Uh, and look, uh, Paxton is, you know, he is and will continue to be, at least for now, uh, you know, their main spokesman uh, and, you know, their biggest office holder uh, on that side of the GOP civil war. And it's just wild to hear uh, Paxton telling Tucker Carlson and whoever else will listen uh, that people like Karl Rove, who was the strategist who helped to get George W. Bush elected twice to the White House and also to the governor's office before that, uh, Paxton saying that Karl Rove is a liberal and that Texans for Lawsuit Reform, uh, which is, of course, a big business group in Texas, that they somehow are liberals who really want to take him out because he's conservative. If you look at the way that the legislators voted during this process, both in the House and the Senate, um, you know, there are bipartisan votes, uh, you know, in, in both chambers. Um, you know, in, in the Senate, it fell short, but there were Republicans who were very conservative uh, who voted to convict the attorney general, two of them, uh, one named Kelly Hancock from Fort Worth uh, and one named uh, Robert Nichols from deep east Texas. Nobody could say that they're liberals. Uh, Paxton and his supporters are trying to portray this as some grand battle between liberals and conservatives and that he's on the conservative side. But the truth is, if you look at the voting pattern on this, that there are conservatives who voted against Paxton in the whole process. So it's not really about ideology here. It's really more about corruption. And there are a lot of Republicans uh, in the legislature who voted to try to root out corruption in the attorney general's office, but they were not successful. So we have a corrupt side and we have a conservative, hardcore, true, straight arrow, real conservative side represented by Representative uh, Andrew Murr of, of Junction and House mm-hmm. Speaker Dade Phelan. Is, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Phelan and uh, Murr and uh, Jeff Leach, uh, who is the House Judiciary Committee chairman. Uh, he's from North Texas as well in Collin County, the same county uh, that gave us Ken Paxton. And during, uh, you remember this uh, last week, during the closing arguments, Chairman Leach, who's very conservative but by any measure, uh, he gave a powerful speech in which he talked about, you know, sort of growing up in Collin County politics alongside Ken Paxton, who he had considered for many years to be one of his um, one of his mentors in politics, somebody that he uh, considered to be a good friend. They went to church together. They were buddies and all of that. Uh, but at some point, Chairman Leach, just like the whistleblowers in Paxton's office, came to understand it was, you know, their feeling their belief that there was something happening uh, with Paxton that uh, reeked of criminality. And that's why those whistleblowers went to the FBI to report, uh, you know, something that continues uh, to spur an FBI investigation. And that's, of course, why there's a federal grand jury in San Antonio that's looking into all this. But Chairman Leach said, look, at some point, it didn't matter if the guy was his friend anymore. Um, what mattered is standing against corruption. And he had asked the Senate to convict. Of course, they did not. And now you have Paxton um, promising retribution against Chairman Leach and others. Uh, Paxton, uh, in at least one of his interviews uh, over the last couple of days, said that uh, he would be in Texas House districts campaigning against some of the people you're talking about, against Phelan in Beaumont, against Murr in the Hill Country, and against Jeff Leach in Paxton's home county of Collin County. And does that um, have some sort of resonance? Does it, that sound like a legitimate threat? It, you, look, uh, this is uh, somebody who has, n- I think, 90, uh, according to the last poll I saw, the last credible poll, Paxton has 94% name ID with 
GOP voters in this state. So they know who he is. He's a known quantity, um, and you know he's somebody who can uh, you know maybe move the needle in some of these campaigns. But I would say uh, that these primary elections are dynamic. It's not any one issue that gets you beat or is the issue that puts you over the top as far as the uh, winning side. What it is, uh, is that there will be a host of issues that voters are going to look at. And and in those elections, as you know, David, very well, uh, the thing that fires up Republican primary voters the most is border security and illegal immigration, and no other issue comes close. Now, Paxton is going to make the case that he's the biggest fighter against illegal immigration and the biggest fighter of the uh, Biden administration uh, when it comes to um, immigration policy. Um, but I, I don't think that if somebody voted to impeach Paxton in the House, that that is what's going to get them beat. What would get them beat uh, is being seen as too soft on illegal immigration, uh, not being sufficiently uh, pro-life, not being sufficiently pro-gun enough, and that, that sort of stuff, uh, and not necessarily uh, the way that they voted in this impeachment. And as you know, the news cycles move so fast. I mean, everyone's talking about this right now in Texas politics. Two weeks from now, or three weeks from now, we'll be wrapped up in a fight about school vouchers at the Capitol, and that's what people will be talking about. What about this uh, teasing that Paxton is doing that he's going to take on John Cornyn for the Senate? Not a surprise. The supporters of Paxton uh, had been promoting uh, some poll numbers that didn't look like legitimate poll numbers, but poll numbers that showed that Paxton would be competitive against John Cornyn uh, in a Republican primary. Uh, here you have uh, Paxton, who is uh, really trying to embrace and wants to represent the MAGA, the Make America Great Again uh, movement, the, the you know the Donald Trump movement, um, Paxton wanting to be that kind of Republican. Uh, and as I pointed out previously, uh, look, you have those MAGA Republicans who would boo the governor of this state, Greg Abbott, off the stage uh, in Montgomery County during a rally last year. Uh, but Abbott, uh, he still beats four challengers, and he gets 66% in a Republican primary. Same thing for John Cornyn. You had the MAGA folks booing him off the stage at the Republican Party of Texas convention last year in Houston. Um, and in his primary, John Cornyn gets, I think, 76% uh, against four challengers in his Republican primary. So uh, a lot of these folks um, you know, who uh, run around talking about how they're the true conservatives. They really are the uh, MAGA warriors, if you will. That's the way they put it. Um, they are loud, uh, but at least in the Republican Party in Texas, they seem to be a smaller number than those traditional Republicans who vote for folks like Abbott and Cornyn. So you mentioned the uh, voucher special session of the legislature mm -hmm. that's expected to happen in October. Um, and of course, vouchers are not popular with rural Republicans. That's how we ended up where we are now. We couldn't get it through the regular legislature. And we have uh, Governor Abbott saying, well, we'll just keep calling them back to session after session, or yeah. he will also mount primary challenges to the candidates who do not support him. Yeah. But if vouchers aren't popular in the rural counties, how the, this primary challenge is a threat to the candidates who don't support vouchers. David, it is the right question. And the answer is that, the, and the governor knows what I'm about to say is correct, is that if he goes around campaigning against rural Republicans because they were not uh, sufficiently supportive of vouchers, that he can't win the campaign that way. So instead, what he will do uh, is Abbott will campaign against uh, rural Republicans by saying that these folks are too liberal, that they're not uh, sufficiently um, you know, supportive of things like border security, guns, um, you know, uh, abortion restrictions, et cetera, uh, the governor will say anything 
about anyone to try to get his way on this. And the proof of that uh, was a couple of cycles ago. You might remember uh, a few primaries ago, uh, the governor campaigned against three Texas House members. And the issue he was upset uh, with them about uh, was that they had spoken out against his executive authority, and they said that he was abusing his executive authority. But when Abbott was campaigning against those Republicans, what did he say on the campaign trail? What he said was, these people are, you know, they're able to run for office if they want. They can do anything they like, but they should run as the liberal Democrats that they really are. Of course, the people he was talking about, Representative Lyle Larson from San Antonio, a former representative, uh, former Representative Sarah Davis, um, these are not liberal Democrats. These are people who were uh, you know, conservative Republicans throughout their careers. Uh, and you might remember Abbott was not successful in those two races, but uh, his candidate did win down in Galveston County, but that was because, in my belief, it was because uh, the person running against that representative uh, just had way more money than the other candidate. It was basically able to buy that office. Uh, that uh, that candidate's name was Mays Middleton, uh, who did win a Texas House seat and is now in the Texas Senate. We should introduce the phrase, you know, the principled Texas conservative to describe <laughs> these people. Operative word, principled compared to the people who support uh, Paxton, th those types. Yeah, I mean, this is this really is, um, as you said, uh, just sort of a new uh, era in the Republican Civil War in Texas. And, you know, the big question being, what does it really mean to be a Republican in this state? Are you somebody who, you know, sides with uh, the MAGA movement or someone who sides with uh, those who uh, have you know, represented the kind of conservative principles that have been, uh, you know, at the heart of Republican politics in Texas for decades? So now that Paxton was able to be acquitted from his impeachment, what does that mean for future whistleblowers in the state of Texas, people who want to come forward and call out wrongdoing? I have to tell you that it's really um, disappointing uh, on so many levels. I've had a lot of conversations with staffers in Texas government, people who work for legislators, people who work for uh, you know, various state agencies, um, and there's a real chilling effect uh, when those people who work in state government, when they see the result in that impeachment trial, uh, the first reaction that I hear from some of these folks is that they would never, um, they would never report wrongdoing that they see in state government again, if that's what the result is going to be. Basically, the Senate, in voting the way that it did to tell those whistleblowers that what they said didn't matter, um, those senators are essentially saying to their own staff that if, if you cross uh, an elected uh, office holder, that there's no one who can save you, that no one is going to be on your side. Um, and I saw where one conservative thought leader, uh, a guy named Tom Giovanetti from uh, North Texas, he runs something called the uh, Institute for Policy Innovation, which was set up by, uh, you might remember, former House Majority Leader Dick Armey many decades ago. Uh, Giovanetti said it's going to be decades before anyone steps forward to report wrongdoing in Texas government again. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is blasting the way that the impeachment was handled on the House side, and he is looking for an audit to see. I'm not sure what that's supposed to do. And then also he wants to change the state constitution to make it harder to do impeachments. Um, I don't see if that's necessary because we just saw that they're useless. But what, what's Dan Patrick, what's he getting at? 
Well, the lieutenant governor is covering for the fact that uh, he did accept $3 million from wealthy Ken Paxton supporters right before he acted as the judge in this trial. Uh, and you do have the Speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, another conservative Republican, saying that Patrick was completely biased in this whole thing and that Patrick basically outed himself as being on Paxton's side when Patrick gave that blistering speech last weekend, um, saying that the House's process was wrong and that he wanted the audit that you're talking about and all of that. Um, I do think that if there are going to be changes in the way that impeachments are done in Texas, if the Constitution is going to be altered, I have an idea to throw in as well for Lieutenant Governor Patrick's proposal. One thing they could change in the Constitution is that the lieutenant governor should not be able to be the judge in the case, especially if that judge is going to take $3 million, $2 million of which was a loan. He shouldn't be able to take contributions from uh, you know, the defendant in the case right before presiding over the trial. So instead, what they could put in the Constitution is maybe a provision that says that the uh, chief justice of the Texas Supreme Court has to act as the judge during the trial instead of the lieutenant governor. And the terminology that's been used is that the Senate was the jury. If that was an actual jury, whatever happened, that would have been jury tampering beyond anyone's imagination is what we saw with this impeachment uh, trial. Look, it's nothing like a real trial in so many ways. The lieutenant governor had said that, uh, you know, previous to the trial, he had said this is going to be, quote, a political trial. Uh, but when it was convenient for him to treat it as a criminal trial, he did that. And look, the lieutenant governor put his thumb on the scale in so many ways in favor of Paxton. In fact, I would say he put his whole body on the scale and jumped up and down trying to get a good result for Paxton. Uh, because of one of pa uh, Patrick's rulings, uh, Paxton was not forced to take the stand uh, and explain himself. His mistress was not forced to take the stand and explain herself. Nate Paul, the investor at the center of all of this, the, the guy who was buddy-buddy with Paxton and was getting so many uh, alleged favors from Paxton from the AG's office, Paul was not forced to testify either. Um, and at the end of the trial, the lieutenant governor said that if the jury did not come back with a quick verdict by last Monday, uh, he was going to lock them in the Texas Capitol. He was going to sequester them in the Capitol building. It's my understanding that those senators who were leaning toward conviction, well, those folks wanted the entire Senate to sit with each other and go through the entire trial record together and really take a look at all the evidence. And those who wanted to uh, acquit, they were the ones saying, no, we don't need to do all that. And so when the lieutenant governor said, if y'all don't have a quick verdict on this, I'm going to lock you in the Texas Capitol, that was really, once again, putting his, not just his thumb, but his whole body on the scale, trying to get a positive result for Ken Paxton. So he can say that uh, he didn't have any bias in this, and he has said in some TV interviews, Patrick has said that, um, that the speaker is questioning Patrick's integrity by even bringing up any of this. And I would say, yes, the speaker is doing that. The speaker is essentially saying uh, that Patrick has no integrity when it comes to this because he took $3 million from those Paxton supporters uh, before presiding over the trial. So this is not the end of it. We do have, as you mentioned, a grand jury that we could eventually have an indictment, federal mm -hmm. indictment for, for Paxton and another yeah. trial. So that's not part of what happened with this impeachment, but it could highlight, emphasize, and show that the actual impeachment was brought correctly and that there was actual evidence. So it, in looking forward, it seems like everything that Paxson and, and his defenders were saying could be exposed as malarkey. Yeah, and uh, look, what's it going to look like uh, for the Texas Senate in hindsight if 
Paxton is convicted uh, of, in the state-level prosecution in Houston, or if there is a federal case that's brought, uh, you know, because of the activities uh, happening there in San Antonio, the investigation in San Antonio uh, through that grand jury uh, probe of all this, um, politically probably won't look good for them. But it was interesting to see that uh, one of the conservative Republican senators who voted to acquit. Senator Drew Springer, um, who represents uh, Wichita Falls and and that part of, you know that part of Texas on down to Denton County, uh, Senator Springer had said uh, that you know that the FBI is probably going to pick right up where the Texas Senate left off. So I would say there's a lot more to come. Scott Braddock is the editor of the Quorum Report, the most read political newsletter in Texas. Scott also helped create and he hosts the Texas Take podcast in collaboration with the Houston Chronicle. In recent days, many thousands of migrants fleeing mainly Venezuela have crossed the Rio Grande near Eagle Pass, Texas, and are surrendering to immigration authorities. The numbers are so great that existing shelters are being overwhelmed. The mayor of Eagle Pass, Rolando Salinas Jr., signed an emergency declaration to allow the city to apply for state resources and funding to handle the number of migrants being released by immigration officials. There are already thousands of Venezuelan immigrants in the United States with asylum claims. And to help take the strain off of local governments, the migrants are now eligible to apply for work permits immediately. This week, the Biden administration further expanded the opportunities for work authorization for recent migrants by extending temporary protected status to more than 400,000 Venezuelans. The new status, known as TPS, allows Venezuelan migrants to apply immediately for the work permits. The U.S. asylum system was not created to be used like this. It was expected to be employed on an infrequent basis, only to handle a fraction of the numbers that we're now seeing. And there is a conversation to be had about what is going on in Venezuela, why is that nation a failure, and if the United States shares in some responsibility for this situation. For over 17 years, the United States has imposed sanctions in response to abuses, corruption, and anti-democratic actions in that country. Julia Preston is a contributing writer for The Marshall Project. Her latest article is Migrants Desperate for Jobs Trapped in Asylum Maze. The flow of Venezuelans has become major business for smuggling organizations so that the passage through the Darien Gap, which is uh, a jungle so impenetrable that I myself would not have believed that someone would try to make this passage. That has become a major migration route and all along the way there are smugglers who are making money from uh, helping Venezuelans to get through the Darien Gap and up through Central America, across Mexico to the Mexican to the uh, United States border with Mexico. So you, what you have is a massive migrant stream, and that is something that's very difficult to turn around or stop. The announcement that the Biden administration is going to provide almost half a million temporary protected status. How does that change things for Venezuelans who are in the country? presently. So this announcement came after significant pressure from Democrats on the 
Biden administration. And I think for your purposes, it's interesting to think about this as being the battle of the governors. Uh, you have Governor Abbott, who kind of started this uh, movement of migrants towards the city of New York when he put forward this busing plan a year ago. And now you have the intervention of the governor of the state of New York, a Democrat, who has been leaning on President Biden directly to do something. What they did was grant temporary protected status to Venezuelans who have been in the country on or before July 31st. And the reason they did this is because TPS, as it's known, comes with the benefit that you can apply immediately for work authorization. Uh, and it's a much easier application process in general than the process that most uh, of the migrants who have come to New York have been trapped in, which is the asylum process, which is a terrible maze that is very difficult to navigate. So the immediate impact of this is that uh, almost 500,000 Venezuelans will be protected from deportation for 18 months, and they can immediately apply for work authorization. This will have a, a significant impact in the city of New York in particular, because New York has had to house almost 60,000 migrants. And Mayor Adams of New York, Mayor, Mayor Eric Adams of New York said yesterday that about 15,000 of those migrants are Venezuelans. And so they will now be able to get a, a, an actual status. They will be able to apply for work authorization. And presumably, based on what I've seen, they want to work. And so they will go out into the labor force and start working and they will uh, relieve the burden on the city services that taxpayers have been paying in New York. TPS is a tool that presidents have used in the past. I remember Clinton used it quite a bit after there was a destructive earthquake in Haiti and other disasters that struck Central America. Does this follow that tradition? I think this is exceptional in the sense that you don't have a hurricane in Venezuela. What you have is just epic mismanagement, misgovernment, and you have an unprecedented migrant outflow and exodus from Venezuela. And then, um, and so this is, I would say, a kind of improvisation. I think maybe desperate is too strong a word, but the administration has been just improvising, trying to figure out how to manage this problem. And the scale of the uh, the temporary protected status for Venezuelans is, is really, I believe, unprecedented because the 472,000 people who are eligible for this most recent um, TPS designation is on top of more than 200,000 Venezuelans who already received TPS in 2021. So this is a very large population uh, that is coming to the United States because of the um, very difficult conditions in their home country. The very difficult conditions in their home country, which used to be a very uh, prosperous, rich country, uh, but has been mismanaged due to an incompetent authoritarian socialist regime that the United States 
is uh, at odds with, to say the least. Uh, it does seem like the United States has done things to destabilize Venezuela, even more so by trying to bring about uh, a regime change. So typically when we've had a communist regime like in Cuba and we've had people flee Cuba and come to the United States that they were received with assistance, why not Venezuela? That is a very good question. Um, the politics in the United States around immigration has just become so fraught and contested that uh, people who are coming to the border uh, are no longer perceived with the kind of sympathy that the Cubans received for many years. Indeed, the Cubans and even the Venezuelans in South Florida have not been as welcoming to this new population of migrants as uh, they were in the past when the Cubans were coming uh, across the water to South Florida. Um, I think part of it has to do with the way that they're coming. In other words, uh, for whatever reason, as I don't need to tell you that the politics of the border has just become incredibly fraught. And since they are coming across the border uh, and they're going into an asylum system that is tremendously dysfunctional, really broken, uh, and it seems very disordered the way that they are coming. I think that they have not elicited the same kind of political sympathy in this country that the Cubans or other populations that were fleeing uh, leftist governments that were uh, in opposition to the United States have uh, earned in the past. Julia Preston is a contributing writer for the Marshall Project covering immigration. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past episodes of Texas Matters on our website at tpr.org. And you can find us, rate us, and subscribe wherever you get great podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.